Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Children, if you're in um, first grade and down below, you may leave now to go to Children's Church. And as the children are leaving, I do have a prayer request and a praise to share with the congregation. Um, The prayer request is that uh, we as a mission team leave in a few weeks to go to India. And um, we have a call tomorrow night with our missionary on Skype. If you know what Skype is, it's a webcam. And um, he emailed me this morning and said that uh, he was in the Bogtaw villages just yesterday. He's got some great leads. And all he said was, I've got a challenge for your church. To, to, to some, some new ministry. So we'll find out what that is tomorrow, tomorrow night. So be in prayer. The praise is, um, thank you for all of you that contributed to the garage sale. We raised about $4,700 yesterday, plus all of the money that's come in over the past few months of just our generous congregation. I think we're at the point now where everybody's way is paid. So um, we'll have to add those numbers up, but that is a... A great praise, just the generosity of our church. So be in prayer for us as we uh, prepare to go to India in the next few weeks. I want you to hear the words to what ABC News and other media outlets have said is the most popular song played at funerals. You might not know what this song is, but this is what people want played when they leave this world. Are you ready? Here's the most popular song played at funerals. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friends, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. Regrets I've had a few, but then again too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through with exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and much, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, I stood tall, and I did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed and cried. I've had my fill, my share of losing. But now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh not, not me. I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. Now this may be shocking, but it's not really surprising, is it? That this would be the words that would be the most famous song wanted played at a funeral. I did it my way. We see, we live in a culture that champions self champions pride, champions accomplishments. We are puffed up with all of these things that we want to contribute. At the end of our lives, we want to look the world in the face and say, I did it my way. Now, this could have been the theme song for King Nebuchadnezzar. Over the past few weeks, we've been mesmerized by this king, haven't we? We've seen a few weeks ago that he was living a, a pitiful illusion with the first dream that he had in chapter 2. 
Last week we saw that he was a wrathful, out-of-control, vengeful king that wanted to throw those three young men into the fiery furnace. And, And as we saw last week, he never confessed out of his mouth, this is my God. He said, this is the God of of Daniel, this is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he never personally got to the point where he confessed God as his God. He was living this quasi-spiritual existence, a little bit of conviction, but without conversion. He was touched, he was moved, he was impressed by the things of God, but no actual change, no transformation. He had seen God answer the first dream. He had seen the rescue from the fiery furnace. And so we have to ask our question this morning, what's the fate of this megalomaniac? Will he finally surrender to the living God? What will be the final chapter written for King Nebuchadnezzar? Will he finally repent in brokenness and humility before the living God? Let's turn to Daniel chapter 4 and see this unfold. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. It's interesting, these first three verses, because it's spoken in the first person. Nebuchadnezzar is making a proclamation to the nation about what God has done for him personally. Now, at first glance, we may think that he's referring to the fiery furnace. But what he says here is, I want to show you the amazing things that God has done for me. So this is a personal testimony from the king's mouth himself of what God has done for him. Now this is probably the end of his life, the end of his story. He's fading on the horizon. Daniel's probably 50 years old at the time. But these are really the last words that we have from King Nebuchadnezzar on the pages of the Bible in Daniel. This is his last will and testament. What happens to this king? What I want us to see this morning are four aspects of the life of this king in his final days. This is the last time we hear about him in Daniel. What big four events happen in the life of this king? Well, the first thing I want us to look at, and it's very, very similar. It's the same point that we had two weeks ago. So if you're taking notes, you may sound Sean's being redundant. And yes, I am, because this king shows the same patterns. Here's number one. This king is still living an illusion. He's still living an illusion. Let's see how this unfolds. Let's continue reading this story. Pick up in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he whose name Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, 
Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. Notice that the king is living in ease. He's living in luxury. He's in easy street. He, he, he's relaxing at a time of peace in his kingdom, and he's living this life of ease. It says that he's prospering. Now, it's interesting. There's a play on words in the original language of what this word prospering means. Prospering means to grow like a luxuriant tree. And if you keep reading the story, you'll see this luxuriant tree again. He's having life easy. He's relaxing. Things are good until what? He has a dream. Now, in chapter 2, he had a dream that alarmed him. He has another dream that alarmed him. And if you go back to chapter 2, he probably should have what when he heard the first dream and had it interpreted by Daniel? He should have repented. He should have changed. He should have transformed. And then the fiery furnace episode where God delivered the three young boys out of there, he should have seen that and repented. But yet, he's in the middle of this ease and comfort, living life to its fullest, and he's alarmed by a dream. Under this big heading of living in illusion, I want us to see three things of the king living in illusion that that illustrate for us how he is living in illusion. First of all, he doesn't consult Daniel first. He doesn't bring Daniel in first. Who does he bring in first? The astrologers, the Chaldeans, all the magicians. At this point, he's actually a practical atheist. It wasn't that he didn't know that Daniel could answer the dream. He didn't know that, it wasn't that he didn't know of Daniel's abilities that God was with him. He basically said, I know all that, but I'm choosing to go the course of bringing in my people. I'm going to bring in my people first to give me the answer that I want. He's going to bring in the pagan interpreters to his dream. He doesn't consult Daniel first, knowing that Daniel could have given him the answer. Secondly, he still calls Daniel by his pagan name, Belteshazzar. Just a kind of way to to dig into Daniel and remind him, Daniel, you are a product of Babylon. Remember, you were under this three-year indoctrination period that we looked at a few weeks ago. Your name is Belteshazzar, named after a foreign god. You're not Daniel, which means God is my judge. You are a product of Babylon. But thirdly, and I think most tellingly, he calls on Daniel instead of calling upon God. He doesn't go to God in prayer. He'd seen God work. He'd seen God do things miraculously. Instead of going directly to God in prayer, he goes to the guru. He goes to Daniel. He wants this therapist, this guru, this holy man to come in and answer his questions, but he doesn't go directly to God himself. And I've seen this time and time in my ministry. People want a holy man, they want a priest, they want a guru, they want a therapist to talk about their problems, but they never go to Jesus himself. They want the wisdom of the world. Come in and help me with my problems. Now, I'm not downplaying pastoral counseling, okay? If you have a problem and you want to come in and talk with me, I will be more than happy to sit down and pray with you and talk with you and counsel you. I do it all the time, but you need to understand something very, very important, okay? I can't fix you, okay? I can't fix you. But what I can do is I can point you to the one who can fix you. I can point you to Jesus who can fix you. But you need to go to Christ himself. You see, this is what separates evangelical Protestantism from all the other religions of the world. We can go directly to 
God with our problems. We don't have to go through a guru. We don't have to go through a, through a holy man. We don't have to go through a therapist or a priest or anything. We can go directly to God. And, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do. I mean, Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. So Nebuchadnezzar says, Okay, I'm going to bypass all of that. I'm not going to go directly to God. I'm going to be quasi-spiritual. I'm going to bring in my guys first. If they don't give me the answer, I like, okay, I'll resort to Daniel as a last resort. I'll bring him in. But he knows better. He's seen Daniel. He's seen Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego obey the living God. Why does he bring Daniel in as a last resort? And let me just, let me just, let me just ask you this question. Does it sometimes bother you when you see this in people? God may do a work in their life. They're not a Christian, but God may do a work in their life. Or God may do a work in your life and they see an amazing thing happen and God does something in his common grace to intervene and they don't give God credit at all. They, they walk around like God wasn't even in the picture. They don't, give, they don't even give God credit. And so sometimes people can be uh, like face to face with God's power and yet they're totally blind to what God's doing in their life. So the, the first big issue that we see from Nebuchadnezzar, which we've seen over and over and over again, is he's living in illusion. He's at ease, he's comfortable, he's a practical atheist, he's trusting in himself, he's prideful, and then all of a sudden, he has a dream. That's the second thing I want us to look at this morning, the dream itself. Let's continue to read this long section. I may, I may summarize some of this just for the sake of time because it's, it's kind of repetitive. It's the dream, and then you get the dream again. Sometimes you wonder why in Hebrew storytelling... You have, the, you have a lot of repetition. Just a side note, this is an oral tradition, so it's meant to be spoken to generation to generation. That's why there's a lot of repetition in, in, in the Old Testament. But let's, let's look at this dream. Verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking about his dream. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, "'Chop down the tree and lop off its branches.'" Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with the band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him, notice the switch there? It goes from a tree to him. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the words of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, what's going on in this dream? What, what's this? You got this tree growing up, very luscious tree, and all of a sudden, uh, the watcher, this angel comes down and says, lop off the tree, cut it down, but leave a stump there, but, and then maybe it'll eventually grow back. 
And then he's going to walk around like an animal and eat grass and all this weird stuff's going to happen. What's going on in this dream? Well, let's just look at three issues related to the dream, okay? First of all, this towering tree reaching up to heaven, <coughs> excuse me, is very similar to what we've seen over and over again with the Tower of Babel. What was the Tower of Babel? It was a monument to reach up to heaven so that they could make a name for themselves. What was he doing last week? He was building a golden image, 90 feet high, up to heaven to make a name for himself. It's the Tower of Babel again. Genesis eleven four. we find what they said when they were building the Tower of Babel. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we dis- be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is what the king's trying to do again. Remember, this is Babylon, Babylon, Babel. It's the same place where the Tower of Babel took place. Again, the king is trying to make a name for himself. He's trying to puff himself up. He's trying to elevate his kingdom, his stature. This tree represents everything he's trying to do to puff himself up. But secondly, the king is given a clear warning to repent. These watchers, these holy ones come down and say, These things are going to happen to you so that you will know that the living God, the Most High God, is the one that's put you into power, King. Now, let's just skip down to verses 25 through 26 because basically Daniel tells him the dream and it's it's, it's a repeat. Um, So just for the sake of time, go down to verse, actually, let's look at verse 24. This is the interpretation, O King. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men And your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you may know that heaven rules." This, this type of bestial behavior, acting like an animal, Daniel says the purpose of this is so that you would know, you would come to your senses, that God alone is the ruler. King, you better wake up, is what Daniel's saying. King, you better wake up. You've had two chances. The first dream, you didn't repent. The fiery furnace, you didn't repent. Here's, here's, here's number three. Strike three, you're out, king. You better pay attention because this is a warning for you to repent so this doesn't happen to you. We're reminded of the words in Paul in Romans 2 where Paul says this, Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render each one according to his works. Do you realize how patient God has been with Nebuchadnezzar? He's been pretty patient with him for three chapters now. And finally, God says, I'm giving you some time to repent. And just a side note, God's kindness is always meant to lead to repentance. It's not meant so you can keep sinning and sinning and sinning, hoping that you're going to get away with it. The reason you haven't got caught or the reason the consequences haven't caught up with you is because maybe God in his patience and his kindness is giving you an opportunity to finally repent before it's too late because he says there is a day of judgment coming. So take advantage of God's kindness. And then we see the nature of this repentance in verse 27. Notice the nature of this repentance. 
Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps, perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel says, king, you've been oppressive. You've been cruel. You've been unjust. You've not treated the poor right. Break off your sin. Break off your iniquity. Get rid of this sin. Now, the ESV translates this very good, this idea of breaking off sin. What it meant was, was to break a yoke. You had a yoke around your neck to take the yoke off, to break the yoke off, and throw it down. So the imagery here is is to get rid of sin, to cast sin aside, to throw sin away, to abandon sin, to forsake sin, to repent of sin. That's what true repentance is, is to to forsake sin and then have evidence of concrete action showing that you've truly changed. It reminds me a lot of Zacchaeus. Remember the wee little man? What happened when Christ entered his life? In Luke 19, 8 through 10, we find this said about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now we need to be careful with Zacchaeus. He wasn't somehow saved because he gave up all his goods. He wasn't saved by works. He's saved by grace. But evidence that Zacchaeus had truly been saved was shown forth in repentance, shown forth in concrete action, shown forth in a change. And so God is warning, God is warning Nebuchadnezzar, you need to repent. Now let's look at the third issue that we see about this issue of repentance, this dream. He doesn't take it very seriously. Because if you look at verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. How much time passes? A year, 12 months. Nebuchadnezzar does not repent immediately. He's become comfortably numb in his sin, and he's not paying attention, and he's probably thinking to himself, this isn't going to happen to me. After all, this is just a dream. Who, Who takes stock in dreams anyway? This won't happen to me. This couldn't happen to me. I'm the king by all means. This would never happen to me. So in his life of ease, in his life of comfort, he waits a whole year, and then... It happens. So let's look at the third major issue this morning. First, we've seen the illusion. He still lives in illusion. Then the dream itself, but here is the sad part. The third issue we need to look at today is the humiliation. The humiliation. My former pastor said this, better to be humble now than to be humiliated later. And that's what's going on here with King Nebuchadnezzar. The humiliation. Let's continue reading. All this came upon, verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you 
and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rule, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Where were the king's eyes focused? Where are his eyes? They are on himself. He's strutting around the palace. He's strutting around saying, look at what I have built. He's on the palace roof. He's strutting around in all of his achievements, all of his pomp, all of his arrogance, and he looks out over Babylon and says, look what I have created. And Babylon was impressive. You had the hanging gardens of Babylon, the ancient wonder of the world. You had this wall that surrounded the the city that was 40 feet high and 21 feet thick with this impressive Ishtar gate. There was this ziggurat pyramid in the middle of the city that was 288 feet tall. Fifty temples were said to be uh, present in Nebuchadnezzar's land. And he had at least three palaces. At that time... It was the largest and most impressive city in civilization. And notice what he says. I find it very eerie, very, very eerie what he says about himself. In verse 30, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? It almost sounds eerily like he's praying to himself. What characteristics do you find here that should be characteristics of God? God is majestic. God is glorious. God builds his kingdom. God is mighty in power. Instead of attributing these things to God, he's attributing these things to himself. Look what I have done in my majesty. Psalm 127 verse 1 says this, Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. I mean, this should have been the confession of the king. God's built this city. He's got a really short memory. He doesn't remember the first dream in chapter 2. He doesn't remember the fiery furnace in chapter 3. We get to chapter 4, he's strutting around. He's saying, look what I've created. And at that moment, before the words are even off of his mouth, God says, the kingdom has been taken away from you. Immediate humiliation comes. This is immediate discipline. And God will humble a person if there's persistent pride. Sometimes God may bring discomfort. God may bring discipline. God may bring trials and tribulation into your life if you have this streak of arrogance for us to be broken, for us to be repentant, for us to acknowledge his glory and majesty. So what does he do? He walks around like a cow, eating grass. Now, I don't, can you picture this in your mind? Here is the king, the highest man in all the land, acting like a farm animal. And what I find interesting is that all this time, the chapters that we've seen him, what's been going on the inside of him is he's been animal-like. What he's doing outwardly now has been brewing in his heart. He's been obstinate like a donkey. He's shown wrath like a snorting horse. Everything in his heart has been very animalistic up to this point. And now it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy where he's walking around eating grass 
showing what's really been going on the inside. This phenomenon has been described as lycanthropy. Anybody know what lycanthropy is? It's the medical condition where you think you're an animal. It's often called wolfman syndrome. Um, This is where we get the ancient superstition of a werewolf. This whole medical issue where you, in a state of delirium, believe that you're a wild animal. As a matter of fact, in 1946, Dr. Harrison in a British mental institution observed a patient who did the same thing. He ate grass like a donkey or like a cow, grew long hair and long fingernails. So we don't know exactly what's going on. Whether this was a medical condition that can be explained, all we know is that God did it. God brought about immediate discipline on King Nebuchadnezzar. And here he is, walking around, getting wet with the dew, long hair, long claws, long fingernail, eating grass out in the fields. For how long? It says a period of seven. Now, the text here is not real clear. A period of seven what? Seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years. We really don't know. It's somewhat ambiguous. It just says a period of seven. Now, the traditional reading of this, the the traditional view is it was seven years. We really don't know. You need to know something about apocalyptic literature. When you look at Revelation, when you look at Daniel, seven is a number for completeness. Whether it's seven years or seven days, it was God's allotted time for Nebuchadnezzar to go through this period of degradation. It's very, very sad, this humiliation. One minute he's strutting on the top of his roof in pride and circumstance. He's he's, he's so prideful, the next minute he's out in the fields eating grass like a wild animal, like like a donkey, like a cow. That's the humiliation. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. There's good news to Nebuchadnezzar, and there's good news for you this morning. Let's look at the fourth issue. The fourth issue is the king's transformation. The king's transformation. Where have his eyes been? Chapters 1, 2, and 3. His eyes have been what? On himself. His eyes have been on himself. But I want you to notice something. Let's continue reading. Verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay to Him, or and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and for those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the turning point. This is the transformation we've been waiting for for weeks. He turns his eyes to heaven. In a moment, he comes to his senses. He comes to himself. He realizes that he is in, the, in, the, in, in, the, in the, the pits of degradation and he looks up to heaven and says, what have I become? Does this remind you of the prodigal son? Think about the prodigal son for a moment. Luke 15, 16 through 19. Jesus tells a story about the prodigal son. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. 
and, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, see the same terminology, when he came to himself, when the king came to himself, when, when reason returned to the king, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see, as living, living a life of prostitution, degradation, in the, in the pig feed there, the prodigal son lifts his eyes and says, what have I done? Who have I become? And he returns home to his father. This is the transformation we've been waiting for in Nebuchadnezzar. Will he finally, finally surrender to the Most High God? And he does. And and, and what we have amazingly here is from the lips of a pagan king, some of the most, most profound statements about God that you can find in the Old Testament. Let's look at five aspects of this repentance, just briefly. First of all, and these are very important because this is the transformation of Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, he finally praises God himself. Notice what he says. I lifted my eyes to heaven. I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him. What did he do before? You're the God of, you're the God of Daniel. You're the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was never the personal God. There was no, it was admiring God from a distance. But now it finally comes from Nebuchadnezzar's own lips. This is my God. I'm praising the living God. Secondly, he acknowledges God's sovereignty and not his own. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. God's in charge. God's in control. God's got an eternal kingdom. It's not me, it's God. Thirdly, he accepts the fact that he is a creation of God, not the creator. Notice verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He finally realizes that he's not the potter, he's the clay. He's not the one in charge of this world. Everyone's accounted as nothing. We are dependent upon God. Everything that we have comes from God. We are the creation. We are sinners that need salvation by grace. And he finally comes to the fact that he's not the creator. Isaiah 40, 17 through 18, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? Fourthly, he honors God's right to do what God's going to do. Notice what he says in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, God, you can do what you want to do. No plan of yours can be stopped. It reminds me of the words in Job, Job 42.2. Job says, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There's no force in the universe that can stop God from doing what God's got to do. You can't fight God. You can't stop God. Isaiah 14.27, the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? And notice what he does. This is so important. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Who's king now? God Almighty's king. It's no longer Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't realize that he he doesn't say, I'm the king. God is king. He finally comes to ascendance. Fifthly, he acknowledges that God is right and just in doing what he did. Notice what he says there in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. 
God had a right to do what he did to me. Nebuchadnezzar never complained that God took him through this experience of eating the grass. He never laid the charge at God's feet for being unfair or picking upon him. He says, God, you have every right to treat me this way because you are right and just in the way that you've done things. Just a side note, we can never lay at God's feet that he's ever unfair with us. Don't ever ask God to be fair. If you ask God to be fair, you will get what you deserve. And all of us deserve hell. We need to ask God for mercy, and he grants mercy graciously. But I think the last thing we see here from the king is probably the most important. He transforms from a prideful megalomaniac to the humble man that we've wanted him to be all this time. Notice the, la- the last words off his lips before he goes off, his, before the curtains close on King Nebuchadnezzar, the last words off his lips before he fades off the pages of history, off the pages of scripture, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. He realizes that God hates pride and he repents. Proverbs 16, 18 through 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 3.34 Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. 1 Peter 5.6 Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This is the transformation we've been waiting for. Here we have the king. He's gone from a prideful illusion to this extreme humiliation to a transformation. He praises the living God. That word praise, extol, honor that we see in verse 37 in the original language, that meant ongoing praise. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It was a lifestyle. Isaiah 66, 2. This is what God says about those that are humble. But this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We've seen the transformation of the king. We've seen this transformation. I hope you've seen it this morning, how he goes from being this prideful megalomaniac to a broken man in repentance and praises the living God. But what about you and me? I mean, how does this story hinge upon us? You may look at this and say, well, that's great. I'm not a king of Babylon. I'm never going to eat grass and walk around the fields and grow long hair and long fingernails. How does this story hinge upon us? Let me just tell you in closing this morning, the gospel demands humility. We must all come in brokenness and humility in order to receive salvation. Let me ask you a question. What do you contribute to your salvation? Most of you are probably going to say, nothing, right? I contribute nothing to my salvation. And you would be correct to an extent. But let me just remind you of the one thing you do contribute to your salvation. The one thing you contribute to your salvation are your filthy rags of depravity. The sin in your life you contribute. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, expresses this beautifully. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to you for dress. Helpless I look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. How do we come to Jesus? 
nothing in our hands. And you can't offer Jesus anything except for your sin. How do you come to Jesus naked? You can't clothe yourself. How do you come to Jesus helpless? You can't contribute anything. How do you come to Jesus dirty? You need him to wash you. And here's the amazing thing about the gospel. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. As wicked and as depraved and as unclean and as foul as we are and all the sin that we bring, the grace and love and mercy of Jesus is far greater than we could ever imagine. He is a far greater Savior than the worst of your sins. We sang it this morning. Grace greater than all our sins. So if you're in this room this morning, you think God can't save me because I've done too many bad things. Great news. Jesus loves to save people who are bad. And his love for you is far greater than the sin that you have in your life. He can wash you clean. So where are your eyes this morning? Nebuchadnezzar's eyes were on his accomplishments. Where are your eyes? Are your eyes on your accomplishments? Are you strutting around on your proverbial roof of your palace, looking at your life through self-righteousness, and you're saying, look what I've contributed to my life. Look what I've built. Look at the empires that I've amassed for myself. Look at me. World, it's all about me. Where are your eyes? Or are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are your eyes fixed outside of yourself? to the only one who can save you. Hebrews 12, 2. You guys probably know by now, it's probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Looking to Jesus, because it's like in every sermon, so just, who cares? It's in every sermon. Looking to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Where are your eyes? Are you fixing your eyes on self are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Now, how did this entire chapter begin? It was a personal testimony, right? Really, the, the verses 1 through 3 should have been at the end. Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to tell everybody what God has done for me. Great signs and wonders, great miracles. I want to tell everybody what God has done for me. I've gone from being this prideful king to being in the ultimate humiliation, and then I was transformed. I want the world to know what God has done for me. And what's the greatest miracle that can ever happen? He talks about the signs and wonders that God shows. What's the greatest sign and wonder? What's the greatest miracle that can happen to you today? The greatest miracle is this. You can go from being spiritually dead to being made spiritually alive. You can go from having a heart of stone to having a heart of flesh. You can go from being dead to alive, from lost to saved. You can go from being one who is not in God's family to being in God's family and being saved by grace and experience the love of God is the greatest miracle miracle that can happen to you today. God can come and transform your life the way he transformed Nebuchadnezzar's life, and it is far greater than anything you can imagine because God loves you and takes your sin through Jesus Christ, and he can perform a miracle where you can stand up like Nebuchadnezzar and say, look what God has done for me. Look what God has done for me. Can you, can you this morning give personal testimony? of what God has done for you. Can you walk out those doors and say to people on the streets, I've been changed from the inside out by a God who loves me, who sent a Savior to die for me so that I could be changed for his glory. Can you personally say, look what God has done for me? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning.